Book Three, Chapter Two, of the History of the Conquest of Mexico. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. History of the Conquest of Mexico, by William H. Prescott, Book Three, Chapter Two. Before advancing further with the Spaniards into the territory of Tlaxcala, it will be well to notice some traits in the character and institutions of the nation, in many respects the most remarkable in Anahuac. The Tlaxcalans belonged to the same great family with the Aztecs. They came on the Grand Plateau about the same time with the kindred races at the close of the twelfth century and planted themselves on the western borders of the lake of Tezcuco. Here they remained many years engaged in the usual pursuits of a bold and partially civilized people. From some cause or other, perhaps their turbulent temper, they incurred the enmity of surrounding tribes. A coalition was formed against them, and a bloody battle was fought on the plains of Poyahuatlan, in which the Tlaxcalans were completely victorious. Disgusted, however, with the residents among nations with whom they found so little favor, the conquering people resolved to migrate. They separated into three divisions, the largest of which, taking a southern course by the great volcan of Mexico, wound round the ancient city of Cholula, and finally settled in the district of country overshadowed by the Sierra of Tlaxcala. The warm and fruitful valleys locked up in the embraces of this rugged brotherhood of mountains afforded means of subsistence for an agricultural people, while the bold eminences of the Sierra presented secure positions for their towns. After the lapse of years, the institutions of the nation underwent an important change. The monarchy was divided first into two, afterwards into four separate states, bound together by a sort of federal compact, probably not very nicely defined. Each state, however, had its lord or supreme chief independent in his own territories, and possessed of coordinate authority with the others in all matters concerning the whole republic. The affairs of government, especially all those relating to peace and war, were settled in a senate or council, consisting of the four lords with their inferior nobles. The lower dignitaries held of the superior, each in his own district, by a kind of feudal tenure, being bound to supply his table and enable him to maintain his state in peace, as well as to serve him in war. In return, he experienced the aid and protection of his suzerain. The same mutual obligations existed between him and the followers among whom his own territories were distributed. Thus a chain of feudal dependencies was established, which, if not contrived with all the art and legal refinements of analogous institutions in the old world, 
displayed their most prominent characteristics in its personal relations, the obligations of military service on the one hand, and protection on the other. This form of government, so different from that of the surrounding nations, subsisted till the arrival of the Spaniards, and it is certainly evidence of considerable civilization that so complex a polity should have so long continued undisturbed by violence or fraction in the Confederate States, and should have been found competent to protect the people in their rights and the country from foreign invasion. The lowest order of the people, however, do not seem to have enjoyed higher immunities than under the monarchical governments, and their rank was carefully defined by an appropriate dress, and by their exclusion from the insignia of the aristocratic orders. The nation, agricultural in its habits, reserved its highest honors, like most other rude, unhappily also, civilized nations for military prowess. Public games were instituted, and prizes decreed to those who excelled in such manly and athletic exercises as might train them for the fatigues of war. Triumphs were granted to the victorious general who entered the city, leading his spoils and captives in long procession, while his achievements were commemorated in national songs, and his effigy, whether in wood or stone, was erected in the temples. It was truly in the martial spirit of republican Rome. An institution not unlike knighthood was introduced, very similar to one existing also among the Aztecs. The aspirant to the honors of this barbaric chivalry watched his arms and fasted fifty or sixty days in the temple, then listened to a grave discourse on the duties of his new profession. Various whimsical ceremonies followed. When his arms were restored to him, he was led in solemn procession through the public streets, and the inauguration was concluded by banquets and public rejoicings. The new knight was distinguished henceforth by certain peculiar privileges, as well as by a badge intimating his rank. It is worthy of remark that this honor was not reserved exclusively for military merit, but was the recompense also of public services of other kinds, as wisdom in council, or sagacity and success in trade. For trade was held in as high estimation by the Tlascalans as by the other people of Anahuac. The temperate climate of the tableland furnished the ready means for distant traffic. The fruitfulness of the soil was indicated by the name of the country, Tlascala, signifying the land of bread. Its wide plains, to the slopes of its rocky hills, waved with yellow harvests of maize, and with the bountiful maguey, a plant which, as we have seen, supplied the materials for some important fabrics. With these, as well as the products of agricultural industry, the merchant found his way down the sides of the cordilleras, wandered over the sunny regions at their base, and brought back the luxuries which nature had denied to his own. The various arts of civilization kept pace with increasing wealth and public prosperity. At least these arts were cultivated to the same limited extent, apparently as among the other people of Anahuac. The Tlascalan tongue, says the national historian, simple as beseemed that of a mountain region, 
was rough compared with the polished Tezcucan, or the popular Aztec dialect, and therefore not so well fitted for composition. But they made like proficiency with the kindred nations in the rudiments of science. Their calendar was formed on the same plan. Their religion, their architecture, many of their laws and social usages were the same, arguing a common origin for all. Their tutelary deity was the same ferocious war-god as that of the Aztecs, though with a different name. Their temples, in like manner, were drenched with the blood of human victims, and their boards groaned with the same cannibal repasts. Though not ambitious of foreign conquest, the prosperity of the Tlaxcalans in time excited the jealousy of their neighbors, and especially of the opulent state of Cholula. Frequent hostilities arose between them, in which the advantage was almost always on the side of the former. A still more formidable foe appeared in later days in the Aztecs, who could ill brook the independence of Tlaxcala, when the surrounding nations had acknowledged, one after another, their influence or their empire. Under the ambitious Axayacatl, they demanded of the Tlaxcalans the same tribute and obedience rendered by other people of the country. If it were refused, the Aztecs would raise their cities to their foundations, and deliver the land to their enemies. To this imperious summons the little republic proudly replied, Neither they nor their ancestors had ever paid tribute or homage to a foreign power, and never would pay it. If their country was invaded, they knew how to defend it, and would pour out their blood as freely in defense of their freedom now, as their fathers did of yore, when they routed the Aztecs on the plains of Puyahuatlan. This resolute answer brought on them the forces of the monarchy. A pitched battle followed, and the sturdy republicans were victorious. From this period hostilities between the two nations continued with more or less activity, but with unsparing ferocity. Every captive was mercilessly sacrificed. The children were trained from the cradle to deadly hatred against the Mexicans, and even in the brief intervals of war, none of those intermarriages took place between the people of the respective countries which knit together in social bonds most of the other kindred races of Anahuac. In this struggle the Tlaxcalans received an important support in the accession of the Otomis, or Otomis, as usually spelt by Castilian writers, a wild and warlike race originally spread over the tableland north of the Mexican Valley. A portion of them obtained a settlement in the Republic, and were speedily incorporated in its armies. Their courage and fidelity to the nation of their adoption showed them worthy of trust, and the frontier places were consigned to their keeping. The mountain barriers by which Tlaxcala is encompassed afforded many strong natural positions for defense against invasion. The country was open towards the east, where a valley of some six miles in breadth invited the approach of an enemy. But here it was that the jealous Tlaxcalans erected the formidable rampart which had excited the admiration of the Spaniards, and which they manned with a garrison of Otomis. Efforts for their subjugation were renewed on a greater scale after the accession of Montezuma. His victorious arms had spread down the declivities of the Andes to the distant provinces of Verapaz and Nicaragua, 
and his haughty spirit was chafed by the opposition of a petty state, whose territorial extent did not exceed ten leagues in breadth by fifteen in length. He sent an army against them under the command of a favorite son. His troops were beaten, and his son was slain. The enraged and mortified monarch was roused to still greater preparations. He enlisted the forces of the cities bordering on his enemy, together with those of the empire, and with this formidable army swept over the devoted valleys of Tlaxcala. But the bold mountaineers withdrew into the recesses of their hills, and, coolly awaiting their opportunity, rushed like a torrent on the invaders, and drove them back, with dreadful slaughter, from their territories. Still, notwithstanding the advantages gained over the enemy in the field, the Telasculans were sorely pressed by their long hostilities with a foe so far superior to themselves in numbers and resources. The Aztec armies lay between them and the coast, cutting off all communication with that prolific region, and thus limited their supplies to the products of their own soil and manufacture. For more than half a century they had neither cotton nor cacao, nor salt. Indeed, their taste had been so far affected by long abstinence from these articles that it required the lapse of several generations after the conquest to reconcile them to the use of salt at their meals. During the short intervals of war, it is said, the Aztec nobles, in the true spirit of chivalry, sent supplies of these commodities as presents with many courteous expressions of respect to the Tlascan chiefs. This intercourse, we are assured by the Indian chronicler, was unsuspected by the people, nor did it lead to any further correspondence, he adds, between the parties prejudicial to the liberties of the Republic, which maintain its customs and good government inviolate, and the worship of its gods. Such was the condition of Tlaxcala at the coming of the Spaniards, holding, it might seem, a precarious existence under the shadow of the formidable power, which seemed suspended like an avalanche over her head, but still strong in her own resources, stronger in the indomitable temper of her people, with a reputation established throughout the land for good faith and moderation in peace, for valor in war, while her uncompromising spirit of independence secured the respect even of her enemies. With such qualities of character, and with an animosity sharpened by long deadly hostility with Mexico, her alliance was obviously of the last importance to the Spaniards in their present enterprise. It was not easy to secure it. The Tlascalans had been made acquainted with the advance and victorious career of the Christians, the intelligence of which had spread far and wide over the plateau. But they do not seem to have anticipated the approach of the strangers to their own borders. They were now much embarrassed by the embassy demanding a passage through their territories. The great council was convened, and a considerable difference of opinion prevailed in its members— some, adopting the popular superstition, supposed the Spaniards might be the white and bearded men foretold by the oracles. At all events, they were the enemies of Mexico, and as such might co-operate with them in their struggle with the empire. Others argued that the strangers could have nothing in common with them. Their march throughout the land might be tracked by the broken images of the Indian gods and desecrated temples— how did the Tlascalans even know that they were foes to Montezuma? 
they had received his embassies, accepted his presents, and were now in the company of his vassals on the way to his capital. These last were the reflections of an aged chief, one of the four who presided over the Republic. His name was Xicontecatl. He was nearly blind, having lived, as is said, far beyond the limits of a century. His son, an impetuous young man of the same name with himself, commanded a powerful army of Tlaxcalan and Otomi warriors near the eastern frontier. It would be best, the old man said, to fall with this force at once on the Spaniards. If victorious, the latter would then be in their power. If defeated, the Senate could disown the act as that of the general, not of the Republic. The cunning counsel of the chief found favor with his hearers, though assuredly not in the spirit of chivalry, nor of the good faith for which his countrymen were celebrated. But with an Indian, force and stratagem, courage and deceit were equally admissible in war, as they were among the barbarians of ancient Rome. The Kempoalalan envoys were to be detained under pretense of assisting at a religious sacrifice. Meanwhile, Cortes and his gallant band, as stated in the preceding chapter, had arrived before the rocky rampart on the eastern confines of Tlaxcala. From some cause or other, it was not manned by its Otome garrison, and the Spaniards passed in, as we have seen, without resistance. Cortes rode at the head of his body of horse, and, ordering the infantry to come on at a quick pace, went forward to reconnoitre. After advancing three or four leagues, he descried a small party of Indians, armed with sword and buckler in the fashion of the country. They fled at his approach. He made signs for them to halt, but seeing that they only fled the faster, he and his companions put spurs to their horses and soon came up with them. The Indians, finding escape impossible, faced round, and instead of showing the accustomed terror of the natives at the strange and appalling aspect of a mounted trooper, they commenced a furious assault on the cavaliers. The latter, however, were too strong for them, and would have cut their enemy to pieces without much difficulty, when a body of several thousand Indians appeared in sight, and coming briskly on to the support of their countrymen. Cortes, seeing them, dispatched one of his party in all haste to accelerate the march of his infantry. The Indians, after discharging their missiles, fell furiously on the little band of Spaniards. They strove to tear the lances from their grasp, and to drag the riders from the horses. They brought one cavalier to the ground, who afterwards died of his wounds, and they killed two of the horses, cutting through their necks with their stout broadswords, if we may believe the chronicler, at a blow. In the narrative of these campaigns there is sometimes but one step, and that a short one, from history to romance. The loss of the horses, so important and so few in number, was seriously felt by Cortes, who could have better spared the life of the best rider in the troop. The struggle was a hard one, but the odds were as overwhelming as any recorded by the Spaniards in their own romances, where a handful of knights is arrayed against legions of enemies. The lances of the Christians did terrible execution here also, but they had need of the magic lance of Astolfo, that overturned myriads with a touch to carry them safe through so unequal a contest. It was with no little satisfaction, therefore, that they beheld their comrades rapidly advancing to their support. No sooner had the main body reached the field of battle than 
hastily forming, they poured such a volley from their muskets and crossbows as staggered the enemy. Astounded rather than intimidated by the terrible report of the firearms, now heard for the first time in these regions, the Indians made no further effort to continue the fight, but drew off in good order, leaving the road open to the Spaniards. The latter, too well satisfied to be rid of the annoyance to care to follow the retreating foe, again held on their way. Their route took them through a country sprinkled over with Indian cottages, amidst flourishing fields of maize and maguey, indicating an industrious and thriving peasantry. They were met here by two Tlaxcalan envoys, accompanied by two of the Kempoalalans. The former, presenting themselves before the general, disavowed the assault on his troops as an unauthorized act, and assured him of a friendly reception at their capital. Cortes received the communication in a courteous manner, affecting to place more confidence in its good faith than he probably felt. It was now growing late, and the Spaniards quickened their march, anxious to reach a favorable ground for encampment before nightfall. They found such a spot on the borders of a stream that rolled sluggishly across the plain. A few deserted cottages stood along the banks, and the fatigued and famished soldiers ransacked them in quest of food. All they could find was some tame animals resembling dogs. These they killed and dressed without ceremony, and, garnishing their unsavory repast with the fruit of the tuna, the Indian fig, which grew wild in the neighborhood, they contrived to satisfy the cravings of appetite. A careful watch was maintained by Cortes, and companies of a hundred men each relieved each other in mounting guard through the night. But no attack was made. Hostilities by night were contrary to the system of Indian tactics. By break of day on the following morning, it being the 2nd of September, the troops were under arms. Besides the Spaniards, the whole number of Indian auxiliaries might now amount to three thousand, for Cortes had gathered recruits from the friendly places on his route, three hundred from the last. After hearing mass, they resumed their march. They moved in close array. The general had previously admonished the men not to lag behind, or wander from the ranks a moment, as stragglers would be sure to be cut off by their stealthy and vigilant enemy. The horsemen rode three abreast, the better to give one another support, and Cortes instructed them in the heat of fight to keep together, and never to charge singly. He taught them how to carry their lances, that they might not be arrested from their hands by the Indians who constantly attempted it. For the same reason they should avoid giving thrusts, but aim their weapons steadily at the faces of their foes. They had not proceeded far when they were met by the two remaining Kempualalan envoys, who, with looks of terror, informed the general that they had been treacherously seized and confined in order to be sacrificed at an approaching festival of the Tlaxcalans, but in the night had succeeded in making their escape. They gave the unwelcome tidings also that a large force of the natives was already assembled to oppose the progress of the Spaniards. Soon after they came in sight of a body of Indians, about a thousand, apparently all armed and brandishing their weapons as the Christians approached, in token of defiance. Cortes, when he had come within hearing, ordered the interpreters to proclaim that he had no hostile intentions, but wished only to be allowed a passage through their country, which he had entered as a friend. 
this specific declaration was met as usual on such occasions by a shower of darts stones and arrows which fell like rain on the spaniards rattling on their stout harness and in some instances penetrating to the skin galled by the smart of their wounds they called on the general to lead them on till he sounded the well-known battle-cry st jago end at them the indians maintained their ground for a while with spirit when they retreated with precipitation but not in disorder the spaniards whose blood was heated by the encounter followed up their advantage with more zeal than prudence suffering the wily enemy to draw them into a narrow glen or a defile intersected by a little stream of water where the broken ground was impracticable for artillery as well as for the movements of cavalry pressing forward with eagerness to extricate themselves from their perilous position to their great dismay on turning an abrupt angle of the pass they came in presence of a numerous army choking up the gorge of the valley and stretching far over the plains beyond to the astonished eyes of cortez they appeared a hundred thousand men while no account estimates them at less than thirty thousand as this was only one of several armies kept on foot by the Tlascalans, the smallest amount is probably too large the whole population of the state according to claviguero who would not be likely to underrate it did not exceed half a million at the time of the invasion they presented a confused assemblage of helmets weapons and many-coloured plumes glancing bright in the morning sun and mingled with banners above which proudly floated one that bore as a device the heron on a rock it was the well-known ensign of the house of ticarla and as well as the white and yellow stripes on the bodies and the light colours on the feather mail of the indians showed that they were the warriors of xicoctencatl as the spaniards came in sight the tlascalans set up a hideous war-cry or rather whistle piercing the ear with its shrillness and which with the beat of their melancholy drums that could be heard for half a league or more might well have filled the stoutest heart with dismay this formidable host came rolling on towards the christians as if to overwhelm them by their very numbers but the courageous band of warriors closely serried together and sheltered under their strong panoplies received the shock unshaken with the broken masses of the enemy chafing and heaving tumultuously around them seemed to recede only to return with new and accumulated force cortez as usual in the front of danger in vain endeavoured at the head of the horse to open a passage for the infantry still his men both cavalry and foot kept their array unbroken offering no assailable point to their foe a body of the Tlascalans, however, acting in concert, assaulted a soldier named Moran, one of the best riders in the troop. They succeeded in dragging him from his horse, which they dispatched with a thousand blows. The Spaniards on foot made a desperate effort to rescue their comrade from the hands of the enemy and from the horrible doom of the captive. A fierce struggle now began over the body of the prostrate horse ten of the spaniards were wounded when they succeeded in retrieving the unfortunate cavalier from his assailants but in so disastrous a plight that he died on the following day the horse was borne off in triumph by the indians and his mangled remains were sent a strange trophy to the different towns of tlascala the circumstance troubled the spanish commander as it divested the animal of the supernatural terrors with which the superstition of the natives had usually surrounded it to prevent such a consequence he had caused the two horses killed on the preceding day to be secretly buried on the spot 
The enemy now began to give ground gradually, borne down by the riders and trampled under the hoofs of their horses. Through the whole of this sharp encounter the Indian allies were of great service to the Spaniards. They rushed into the water and grappled their enemies with the desperation of men who felt that their only safety was in the despair of safety. "'I see nothing but death for us,' exclaimed a Kempualalan chief to Marina. "'We shall never get through the pass alive.' "'The God of the Christians is with us,' answered the interpret woman, "'and he will carry us safely through.' Amidst the din of battle the voice of Cortez was heard cheering on his soldiers. "'If we fail now,' he cried, "'the cross of Christ could never be planted in the land. Forward, comrades! When was it ever known that a Castilian turned his back on a foe?' Animated by the words and heroic bearing of their general, the soldiers, with desperate efforts, at length succeeded in forcing a passage through the dark clumps of the enemy, and emerged from the defile on the open plain beyond. Here they quickly recovered their confidence with their superiority. The horse soon opened a space for the maneuvers of artillery. The close files of their antagonists presented a sure mark, and the thunders of the ordnance, vomiting forth torrents of fire and sulphurous smoke, the wide desolation caused in their ranks, and the strangely mangled carcasses of the slain, filled the barbarians with consternation and horror. They had no weapons to cope with these terrible engines, and their clumsy missiles, discharged from uncertain hands, seemed to fall ineffectual on the charmed heads of the Christians. What added to their embarrassment was the desire to carry off the dead and wounded from the field, a general practice among the people of Anahuac, but which necessarily exposed them, while thus employed, to still greater loss. Eight of their principal chiefs had now fallen, and Sicotencatl, finding himself wholly unable to make head against the Spaniards in the open field, ordered a retreat. Far from the confusion of a panic-struck mob, so common among barbarians, the Tlaxcalan force moved off the ground with all the order of a well-disciplined army. Cortes, as on the preceding day, was too well satisfied with his present advantage to desire to follow it up. It was within an hour of sunset, and he was anxious before nightfall to secure a good position, where he might refresh his wounded troops and bivouac for the night. Gathering up his wounded, he held on his way without loss of time, and before dusk reached a rocky eminence called Tzompactipetl, or the hill of Tzompac, crowned by a sort of tower or temple. His first care was given to the wounded, both men and horses. Fortunately, an abundance of provisions was found in some neighboring cottages, and the soldiers, at least all who were not disabled by their injuries, celebrated the victory of the day with feasting and rejoicing. As to the number of killed or wounded on either side, it is matter of loosest conjecture. The Indians must have suffered severely, but the practice of carrying off the dead from the field made it impossible to know to what extent— the injury sustained by the Spaniards appears to have been principally in the number of their wounded. The great object of the natives of Anahuac in their battles was to make prisoners, who might grace their triumphs and supply victims for sacrifice. To this brutal superstition the Christians were indebted, in no slight degree, for their personal preservation. To take the reports of the conquerors, their own losses in action were always inconsiderable. But whoever has had occasion to consult the ancient chroniclers of Spain in relation to its wars with the infidel, whether Arab or American, will place little confidence in numbers. 
According to Cortes, not a Spaniard fell, though many were wounded in this action so fatal to the infidel. Diaz allows one. The events of the day had suggested many topics for painful reflection to Cortes. He had nowhere met with so determined a resistance within the borders of Anahuac. Nowhere had he encountered native troops so formidable for their weapons, their discipline, and their valor. Far from manifesting the superstitious terrors felt by the other Indians at the strange arms and aspect of the Spaniards, the Tlascalans had boldly grappled with their enemy, and only yielded to the inevitable superiority of his military science. How important would the alliance of such a nation be in a struggle with those of their own race, for example with the Aztecs? But how was he to secure this alliance? Hitherto all overtures had been rejected with disdain, and it seemed probable that every step of his progress in this populous land was to be fiercely contested. His army, especially the Indians, celebrated the events of the day with feasting and dancing, songs of merriment and shouts of triumph. Cortes encouraged it, well knowing how important it was to keep up the spirits of his soldiers. But the sounds of revelry at length died away, and in the still watches of the night many an anxious thought must have crowded on the mind of the general, while his little army lay buried in slumber in its encampment around the Indian hill. End of Book 3, Chapter 2